Good morning. Uh, our scripture for today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 9, uh, verses 35 to 38. You can read along on page 8 uh, on the New Testament of your Pew Bible. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. There's a, an Irishman, Catholic priest that I have learned to read over the years named Edward Farrell. Farrell, um, the clock up here is not quite right. Anyway, Farrell often has insights that I quite like, and here's one of his. Do we see what we know, or do we know what we see? That's his question. Or do we know what we see? So there's a difference there. The idea is, do we see what we know? Well, then we have a certain grid that we're already working with, and we see everything through that grid, whether it's really true or not. So in fake news world, you know, that question comes up a lot. Do we see what we know? We read our own facts the way we want to read them, or do we actually see it? Do we know what we see? And so what Farrell is implying is that's, that's where we want to be. Do we know what we see? And I, I make that statement because we're going to see Jesus seeing the crowds, and he indeed knows what he sees. So we can kind of keep that in mind as we go, uh, as we think about this text and also about what perhaps gives us meaning. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. So that's a setup verse. And I'm going to suggest that this setup verse looks both back and looks forward. So this is interesting. You may not know this that the Bible that we read, the actual chapter divisions that we see, in the Greek, in the original text, there are no chapter divisions. And in fact, chapter divisions in our text did not actually happen until the middle of the 1300s. It's not that long ago. Before that, there were no chapter divisions. And chapter and verses that we just read now, that did not happen until really the time of the Reformation, until the mid-1500s, 1550. That's when we started seeing chapters and verses. So why is that important? Why, why, why do we care even about that? Well, if we think back towards the early days with what the readers of Matthew were doing, when they did not have chapter divisions, and they certainly didn't have verse differences, then they had to look internally for clues within the text themselves. 
And so the statement that we just read, if we go back to it here, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. If we look back to chapter 4, we will see pretty much that exact statement. Matthew 4.23, when Jesus begins his ministry, it's set up with this statement we just read. So it looks back to that. And now it's announced here in chapter 9, and now it's looking forward. Looking forward to Jesus' engagement with his disciples and mission. So what that means is for the early readers or thinkers of the text, this was an internal clue that a new section was starting up in the gospel. Because we saw it before, and now we see it again. So there are these internal clues that suggest a way of navigating the text before there ever were chapters and verses. Now we find chapters and verses very helpful, right? We can say, look up Matthew 9.35, you can find it right away, it's great. But there were hundreds and hundreds of years when that wasn't the case. So we have the benefit of that today. So this statement is looking back, and it's also looking forward. And we're looking at the threefold ministry of Jesus when we see that. And we'll just walk through this quickly to get to the emphasis in the text. But Jesus' ministry is threefold. It begins with teaching, note. So right now, we're, we're, we're doing a bit of teaching. It's not just preaching, it's teaching. We're talking about the text. We're talking about understanding it. When Jesus started his ministry, the first thing he went and did was he went into the synagogues. He went into the Jewish centers of learning in each town. That's where he began. <coughs> and he would teach that day. There was the seat of Moses. If you went up and sat in the seat of the Moses in, in each synagogue, then you had a, an open mic, basically. And Jesus would teach. So teaching and understanding the scriptures is a very important piece. It always has been. So Jesus engages in teaching. So maybe we engage in that as well. And then there's, of course, preaching. <clears throat> preaching the good news. <clears throat> The Buena Nueva, the good news of the kingdom of God. It's not bad news, it's good news. It's the good news, we've been singing about it, of God's love, his mercy, his kindness, his compassion. This is all good news. So preaching is the good news of the kingdom of God. So, secondly. And then, of course, there is healing. <clears throat> and Jesus engaged in practical steps of helping people, heal people, but the early church followed in that ministry of just of helping, doing whatever they could to help people out. That is caring. And so the acts of caring demonstrate the teaching and the preaching. And so I say that because really that's the work of the church in an ongoing way. We are called to go on, carry on in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was teaching, preaching, healing. In our own way, we are invited to do the same thing. So that's how the text is set up. So it's a new section, looking back, and now it's looking ahead with the idea that Jesus wants to involve his disciples in more active ministry. That's what he wants to do here. So note, when he saw the crowds, 
What does Jesus see? What does he know? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he saw the crowds, what does Jesus see? Well, when he sees the crowd, we are told that he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. This is a common image in the Jewish history. The Old Testament is full of it. In fact, the first example of art history we have in the Christian church in the New Testament is the picture of Jesus carrying a, sh a sheep, sheep over his shoulder. That was the first, before the crucifix, before any of that, we had Jesus as the good shepherd carrying a sheep over his shoulder. That was the very first. And it makes sense because there's such an, a long history in the Old Testament showing the need for shepherds who would watch over their sheep and not be false shepherds, the true shepherds. So the first thing he does, he knows what he sees. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. We have this text showing this in Numbers. Interesting, this is God speaking to Moses about Joshua. Let the Lord, note, the God of the spirits of all flesh. Interesting description of God. The God of the spirits of all flesh. Appoint someone over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep without a shepherd. That's just one example of how key that idea was of a shepherd guiding and leading the sheep. So this again is God speaking to Moses. Moses now speaking and choosing Joshua. So the importance of that image, how does Jesus see them? He sees them as harassed or exhausted, fatigued, worn out. That's how he sees them. You ever feel worn out? Exhausted? My dad, when he came to Canada from Ireland for 12 years, he worked two jobs. Worked in a body shop downtown, full day, and then he went up to a place in Leaside to be a cleaner, and he did that for four more hours. That was his life in Canada as an immigrant for 12 years. Two jobs. And I know that he felt exhausted a lot of that time. Jesus sees them as harassed or exhausted, worn out, and helpless means put down. Literally, it's put down. People are putting them down. Certainly, we've, we've felt that way at times, feel put down by others. That's how Jesus sees them. Harassed and helpless, worn out, exhausted, and put down. That's how he sees these people. And because of that, he has compassion for them. Compassion literally means, you know it, touched in your gut. It's, it's, it's a physical reaction. When Jesus saw that, he had a physical reaction of identifying with the people in solidarity, wanting to be with them to help meet their needs. In fact, when you see that word related to Jesus, compassion, he's always going to do something. Compassion with Jesus drives him to action. Always. So Jesus sees them with compassion, moved in his gut, and so he identifies with them, in solidarity with them, and he has a desire to meet their 
need. Martin Luther King Jr. in the, in the 1960s sees the community, African Americans in, in America. They, they, you know, they don't have voting rights, but basic things. He identifies with that. He wants to make a difference. He's in solidarity with them, right? You know his story. Leads, directs, guys, and ends up being shot, killed. But he took a risk to do that. He had compassion. He wanted to meet their needs. I mean, King was a brilliant man. King could have done all kinds of things. King could have got a position in Yale University or Harvard or whatever and being identified. Hey, man, big paycheck and do all that. He, he didn't do that. He identified with the people. Jesus was the model for Martin Luther King. And so he also remains our model. He, Jesus, guides, leads us, and indeed he is our good shepherd, is he not? John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus has seven I am statements, and this is one of them. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I know my own. People who are living like this instead of this. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father, Abba, knows me. And I know the Father. Jesus says, I know the Father. He knew the Father. He knew what he was talking about. And then he looks out and sees these people hurting and helpless. And he knows the Father cares and he also cares. To the point, I lay down my life for the sheep. The message of Easter. We'll see it next week. So I am the good shepherd. Jesus is our good shepherd. He identifies with us even as he identified with those people. So can we see Jesus as our good shepherd? Do we know what we see? Jesus identifies with us, loves us, cares for us. With us in all of our hassles, Jesus as our good shepherd. So I want you to hear that. I want you to know it. Jesus is your good shepherd. He cares for you even as he cared for the crowds way back when. That's how the text begins. So that's number one. Jesus sees, knows. Second part of the talk or what Jesus does now, then he said to his disciples, remember he wants to engage them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask of the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is a very interesting little jewel of a scripture. Literally, it's the harvest is much. They can focus there on much. But the laborers are few. That's it. Those are the translations. Much, few. Jesus speaks to the disciples. The harvest the plentiful harvest. Down in Prince Edward County in the summertime, man, the fields are just full of corn, all kinds of crops. The harvest is abundant. 
But he says the laborers are few. So it's a call to partner. The harvest is plentiful. But there's a shortage of workers. That's how Jesus sees this. Arlene talked about the need for workers. <laughs> I'm going to be back there, baptism next week. Yeah, come on back and see what's going on. Why not? The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. But this is not a negative statement for Jesus. We're going to see. He doesn't lay a guilt trip on them. In fact, it's an opportunity. Jesus sees this as an opportunity. This is a Kairos moment. The harvest is ready. The fields are ready, man. Go for it. I like to see what they have, the, the Toronto Raptors, and I remember the Raptors were behind, and Van Fleet, was one of their main guard, was coming off. He had just hit a three-pointer, a three and they're catching up. In his words, when he was coming off, you could see it in his mouth was, Let's go! Shoots the three-pointer. He's looking at his teammates, and he says, let's go. We can do it. I think they lost that game. They went on and lost it. <laughs> but his idea was, let's go. So it's the Kairos moment. It, like, come on, let's do it. This is what, in a sense, Jesus is saying. The opportunity is Kairos. Remember, there's two times of type of time. There's chronos, clock time. And kairos, the time of opportunity. This is the time to make a difference. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you know what? This is our moment. This is our time. Jesus works for 30 years, lives in the little town of Nazareth, right? It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's like nowheresville. And then he has three years of ministry. And here we are in the kind of the, begin, the middle of his ministry, and these things are ramping up, and he's saying, let's go. Let's engage. The psalmists often say this kind of word, for he is our God, God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would listen to his voice. It's the language of today. It's the language of now. Now you hear his voice. Act on it. That's it. If you hear his voice and the Spirit begins to touch your life, even this morning, then that's a prod. Now, act on it. Because you can go home after lunch and go to sleep and not even think about it again. It's in the moment. The Spirit touches. Act on it. In C.S. Lewis's book, on, which is his book on the seven devils? Oh, you know. He just taught it. What's his book? C.S. Lewis. Screw tape letters. You, Beth, you're supposed to help me out on those things. Not say to me, what are you talking about? <laughs> Screw tape letters is a senior devil talking to the young devil who's learning the trade. And he sees... There's a student in a library who's reflecting on God. And he's really becoming to a point where he wants to do something about it. And the senior devil says, well, you know what you do in those situations? You, you whisper in the person's ear that he's getting hungry. Just do that. You're getting hungry. Think about this after lunch. So, student, okay, 
I am getting a bit hungry. I'll go. So he goes off and eats his lunch. And by the time he finishes his lunch, he's forgotten the whole thing about what he was thinking about spiritually. Now, today, that's it. When we hear the voice, that's when we are to respond. Don't put it off. That's the invitation. A story of abundance. And here comes the surprising move. Jesus doesn't then turn to his disciples and say, okay, I want you to go. What does he say? Pray. Interesting, your NIV Bibles and your NRSV says ask. The word is pray. The KJV gets it right. It says pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest, note, it's not our harvest, it's the Lord's harvest. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will cast out, send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus doesn't say to them, I want you to go and do it. The intention is that they will engage. But he doesn't say that. He says, pray that the Lord of the harvest, pray that the Spirit will move in people's lives. The Lord of the harvest. That's why I've chosen this text in this bread series. What's our bread? Well, the bread is the harvest. Wheat. Eventually we get bread. Will we eat the bread and receive the nutrition of God for our lives? And then as a result of that, engage in whatever way God is asking us to do it, whatever that way is. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out labors into his harvest field. I think in the area of Weston, we have an opportunity to let go, as Van Fleet said. Let's go. Let's do it. Weston is an amazing area, is it not? I mean, why do you come to church here, in, in this area? I mean, what's, your, what's why? Lots of churches, you could go elsewhere, but you're here. And there's lots of stuff in the area is changing. Big time change. And in the middle of this, if Jesus looked around at all this place and all these people from all over the world, I think he would see this as a harvest, an abundantful harvest that's ready to be reaped in whatever way we see that. It's a lot richer of an area, I'll tell you, in terms of its energy than the area where Beth and I live. We live in Etobicoke. Boring area. <laughs> There's nowhere to get a coffee. You can walk 20 minutes up the street to go to Tim Hortons, but I mean, you know, it's not even a real Tim Hortons, it's in the gas station. It's one of those little guys. Useless. This area is amazing. Everybody from all over the world, all kinds of interesting foods all around here. Boring, middle of Etobicoke, don't go out that way. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is cool, man. A lot going on here. The harvest, hi, how are you? Thought you got something to show me. Cool. Let's see. Oh, I like that. Yeah, basketball, high scores, man. <laughs> Thank you. Let's go, let's do it. So the harvest is full, the labors are few. So we need to hear that. 
What is Jesus saying into the midst of that as we conclude, as we go on? Going forward, three points. Jesus is our good shepherd. We need to hear that. The Buena Nueva. Christ is our good shepherd, your good shepherd. In the middle of hassles, Donette was recognizing that people, people very sick in our community. And, and we need to know that Jesus is our good shepherd even as we go through that. Things happen, stuff happens in life. But Jesus is our good shepherd. So we need to hear that and receive it. It's not a picture of scarcity. It's a picture of abundance. If we go forward next, next door, it's, ab it's about, about abundance, not scarcity. Lots of excellent, exciting, good things can happen in our midst. And will. Kairos moment. Today, now, the psalmist says. And then thirdly, we're invited to become, become partners with God. In whatever way that is. So what does it mean for you? The harvest is much, but the laborers are few. I mean, Jesus asks it. We have to think about it. It's not up to me to tell you what that might be for you. You have to do that. I have to do it. The harvest is much, the laborers are few, Jesus says. Okay, can I hear that, and what does that mean for me? As I eat the bread of nutrition. So, we come back to the question we asked right at the top. What gives our lives meaning? That's what we were saying. Bonnie referenced that in her opening. What gives life meaning? Well, I think a good chunk of meaning comes, one, by us being in relationship with God. To know God as our creator. To know him. I'm creature. He's creator. To know that. Creatures know that. You know, they, they have a sense, not cognition-wise, but they, creatures know how they fit in the universe, I think. They're not just... They're not wandering around asking me, you know, a pilot whale, what's the meaning of my life, right? They know the meaning of their life. Enjoy the waters, do their thing, that's the meaning. We have to think about it. So what's the meaning of your life? Well, to know God, to know him as creator, and then even to push that through beyond to know Jesus, his son, his presence in my life, your life, and what's the invitation for that? To walk with him. To be his friend. Not just a disciple, but to be a friend. And then to live your life with that kind of draw. So life is more than your, your, your job, right? Life is more than your career. Life is asking questions about your vocation. I remember hearing someone saying that, you know, our students go to school and no one's ever asking them what is your true vocation. What's your vocation in life? What they talk about is your career. What's a good career? How can you make a lot of money? Or at least make a good money? That's the whole focus. Nobody's asking people, what is your meaning, purpose in life, vocation? School system has given up on that. Don't even go there. So we're asking that. What is... God saying to me, and what will fulfill my life in meaning? 
in your area, in your discipline, whatever your chosen field is, how are you there, a child of God and a friend of Jesus? As we ask those questions, we will receive more and more and more a sense of meaning and purpose, I believe. To know God, to know Christ. In our music, in our services, in our virtual services, I've been using the music of Valerie and Trevor, Valerie Ransom. These are my cousins, right? So when you see them leading and singing, there's a connection, at least for me. And they're out there and they're doing some music. Valerie has said I can use her music, so I use her music. First Baptist Church in Nanaimo. Their little tagline, for not them, for the whole church, is to know God and to make him known. So I know Allison watches these services. Hello, Allison. <laughs> to know God and to make him known. Now, that's, you know, that's a pretty good tagline. To know him and then somehow wanting to pass that on to others. So maybe there is something in this that can speak to your purpose and meaning and deeper vocation and calling. I believe there is. What does the Spirit say to you and to me in these moments? In Jesus' name. Next week is going to be an amazing week. It's Palm Sunday. We're going to wave our palms. People are being baptized. It's going to be joyful. By the way, we're not doing communion next week. We're doing it on Good Friday. That's the focus. Celebration. So may we hear, may we say yes, not live like this, live like this, in Jesus' name. We'll ask the musicians.